Financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with Michael Hartzman and Dominic Tavella, with additional insight from industry veteran Jordan Kimmel. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets, telling you what may be coming next, investment opportunities, and what to avoid. Now, here are your hosts, Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman. And good evening, everybody. I am Michael Hartzman, as, along with my partner, Dominic Tavella. Today is Tuesday, April 27th, 2021. Good evening, Dominic. How are you? Michael, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Good. No complaints. Uh, thank God. Um, as Jordan just said, a pretty quiet day in the market. But um, I had an interesting afternoon. I was invited onto a call, as you were, with uh, David Kelly, uh, the chief investment officer at J.P. Morgan, really bright man. We've had a chance to meet him several times. And um, he, uh, he's pretty optimistic, and we talk about this every week. But he basically thinks we're going to have a second quarter GDP, gross domestic product, which basically measures the entire economy of the country, of over 10% in the second quarter and 7.5% for 2021. And under normal circumstances, Dominic, those numbers are insane, right? I mean, we used to joke around that China used to print those numbers and we used to assume that they were, you know, not accurate, not that China was ag- ag- exaggerating. So, uh, you know, and then, and then he thinks we'll get back to normal, but um, it was just startling when, and he had some, you know, a case around it, but 10% second quarter GDP, which obviously the market would cheer. Uh, well, look, Mike, uh, two things. The first is that, that we're coming and we're able to come to such lofty numbers because we're coming from such a low spot, right? We, mm-hmm. we literally had an economy that was for all intents and purposes shut down. I mean, literally frozen in ice. And now the ice has been very systematically thawing out and the economy is opening up. We have 50% of the population in this country with at least one vaccine uh, shot and a significant number with both. Um, and quite a few people have gotten COVID and, and now have recovered. So that herd mentality, the ability to go out there and, and actually spend money is something going on every day and getting better every day. And so, yeah, there's going to be a quarter ahead of us that might just be a world record, at least in terms of U.S. economic growth. Yes. And, and he, he categorized 2020 as the year of the pandemic, and he categorized 2021 as the year of the vaccine. And, and to your point, they're predicting, he's predicting we reach herd immunity, which is 70% or better by June, which will be here in the blink of an eye. And I like to remind people that, you know, if we looked at this picture as short as three months ago, six months ago, uh, that was deemed impossible, right? We weren't going to have a vaccine. People weren't going to take it. Um, it wasn't going to work. Um, all this this negativeness, um, which held a lot of investors back, right, Mike? Uh, put, mm-hmm. put a lot of people on the sidelines, refused, uh, those people refused to come back into these markets. And uh, this has gone uh, much better, much faster. God willing, continues to do so. But, you know, herd immunity by June, no one was predicting that. No one. 
And, and, you know, the flip side of 10% GDP, and you know what I'm about to say next, is, is the elephant in the room that the Federal Reserve, I think, continue, continues to choose to ignore, right? And that's the I word, that's inflation. And if we get that type of print for the second quarter, that could put a damper on the market for, for a bit, because then we're going to start worrying about interest rates yet again. So, so the Fed wants to argue that that we will get a and probably a significant spike in inflation, um, but that it, it'll be temporary. That uh, once the economy opens up and the factories open up, and we'll have more supply coming into uh, the markets, we'll have more resources coming into the market. That then inflation will come back down. So they're willing to live with maybe a, a scaring moment in the inflation front and in interest rate front short term for the longer term benefits, but whoa, that, that might frighten a lot of people, right, Mike? Yes. And, and, you know, the media, the, the, the media, as the saying goes, if it bleeds, it leads. And, and what, what, what the sensationalism on in our world is, is definitely interest rates, higher taxes. And, and those are things that the market will quickly turn their, their eyes to if we do get this type of growth, but for now we could just celebrate, you know, thank God the death rate is way down. The infection rate is coming down. Um, the vaccines seem to work and, and hopefully people are going to have an enjoyable spring and summer and get back to do the things they, they enjoy to do with, with friends and family. So I couldn't agree with you more, Mike. Let's enjoy where we are today. Let's enjoy that springtime is here. We've talked a lot about this in the past, that hopefully we would be here at this moment. But we are most definitely keeping an eye on those storm clouds. And you hit it, right? It's inflation, it's higher interest rates, and possibly higher taxes and on individuals and corporations. What will that do to the economy? What will that do to the market? So storm clouds are out there, not quite heading in our direction, but we're definitely paying attention. Absolutely. And so just to shift gears, uh, tonight we have a really interesting guest. Um, you and I know him pretty well. We, we've had dinner with him several times. He's been a guest at, at our client appreciation events. His name is Bill McManus. He's, he's the managing director um, at Hartford, Hartford Investments. He, he's in the Implied, Applied Insights Group. And he does a lot of work with the MIT Age Lab, which you and I are both interested in and um, he's our guest this evening and we, we look forward to having a conversation with him. Yeah, this is going to be a fun one, I think, for our, our viewers, but more important for us, it's how we deal with our clients who are, like ourselves, getting a little older by the day. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're looking at this picture slightly differently than maybe you and I did 20 years ago. Um, so this is going to be a fun one. I, mean, I think we're going to enjoy it. I think we will. And speak for yourself, young man. We will be right back after this break. Financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report. Okay, I'm Michael Hartsman. I'm back with Dominic. And our guest this evening is Bill McManus from, from Hartford Investments. Bill, we have an interesting topic tonight. And before we get started, why don't you just lay the background of um, your interaction with Hartford and your association with uh, MIT. Yeah, absolutely. And, and first, Michael, Dominic, great to see you again. Uh, really excited awesome. to, to be with you, spend some, spend some time, really uh, excited for the little bit of time we have to, uh, together. As you said, my name is Bill McManus. I'm a managing director for our Applied Insights team at Hartford Funds. 
and, and what I do myself and my team, we travel through the country normally. Obviously, we're, we're doing things in a little bit of a different fashion. Hope to be doing them in person again soon. Uh, but what we do is we, we take research and insight from a strategic, long-standing partnership that we have at Hartford Funds with the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and specifically this program they have called the Age Lab. So just real quick background on the Age Lab. I think it helps to understand you know, who they are and what kind of work they're doing, and also why that work is increasingly relevant uh, for, for all of us that are, that are on the line, uh, and then we'll continue our conversation. So quick background, the lab was started in 99, Hartford was a founding sponsor. It's housed in the School of Engineering Systems at MIT, but it's multidisciplinary. So the way that they would describe it, it's about a third engineering, a third every flavor of psychology that you could think of. The remaining third is really a mixed bag. There's researchers with backgrounds in gerontology, anthropology, healthcare, architecture, and really the whole goal, study and understand changing demographics, specifically the impacts of extended life expectancies. If you go back to 1900, which in the grand scheme of history is really not that long ago, life expectancy in the industrialized world was less than 50. We fast forward to today and the prospects of living into our 80s, 90s and beyond is, is pretty much expected. At the lab, they call that a longevity bonus. So what they do is they work with different businesses and industry groups, really helping to rethink and reshape products and services and technology and how they're delivered to this changing segment of our population, not only here in the United States, but around the globe. So Bill, to your point, about a week or two ago, I was talking to my son and he was telling me that Amazon has a service where you could hire someone to come open your boxes, your packages. And my first reaction was, how can someone be that lazy or someone be that you know frivolous with money that they can't open their own boxes? And my son, who's a lot smaller than I am, said, no, it's not that. It's for people who are older, people who have arthritis, people who have disabilities, people who just can't open up a package, right? It could be difficult. And you're the first person I thought of. And, 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 and the first presentation Dominic and I saw you guys do was the one where we asked the question, who will take me for ice cream and who will change my light bulbs and who will I have lunch with? I remember those presentations were geared a lot around technology, such as Uber and I guess Amazon. So can you talk about the little bit how seniors now are really embracing technology and not afraid of it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you pointed out our, our three questions, which is kind of the basis of a lot of the work that we do. That second question that you mentioned was, how am I going to get an ice cream cone? Which, you know, kind of sounds, it's kind of surprising, right? Coming from MIT, you know, rocket scientists and engineers, but they think that's really important, right? Not necessarily how you're going to get to a doctor's appointment or the grocery store, but it's a nice night. You just had dinner. All you want to do is go and get an ice cream cone because that's going to make you happy right now, right? What does that look like? We don't think you can overstate the importance of being able to access what you want, when you want. And I would lump in your story there, right? Having services and providers to help, you know, navigate some of the, let's just face it, complexities that arise from longevity. We've come such a long way in terms of having these services available. The key is to make sure people understand, number one, that they're there, and then really see the demonstrated value. Uh, pretty interesting research from the Age Lab they actually find that older people are more willing to embrace and learn technology if there is a perceived and demonstrated value. If you really see the value into it, you're going to spend the time to, to really learn how to derive the benefit of it. But geez, it, it's come 
such a long way. And I think it's provided so much, let's just say freedom, right, for people to be able to do what they want, when they want, access what they want, pretty much on demand. Uh, I had a similar event, uh, Bill, where uh, I called a client in her mid 80s and she wanted to go through her annual review. And she's like, Don, why don't we just do a Zoom call? And and I was I genuinely shocked. Uh, uh, she said, well, I, I do it all the time with my doctor. So this should be pretty easy with you. And, and she was entirely comfortable with that. Right. I think maybe I was a little bit uh, less comfortable than she was. She's more accepting of it. So this is all part of us understanding that that we're going to have to behave differently and learn how to do our jobs differently going forward. Right. I mean, 100 percent. We are we're planning for and navigating through this unprecedented era of longevity. So it just you know, brings up a whole different set of questions and conversations that we need to have. The, the great news is, like you mentioned, that the solutions are there. And the Age Lab has done some research on you know, behavioral changes, you know, post, not post-COVID, but since you know, we've been unfortunately experiencing the, the you know, challenges of the pandemic. And the word they use is acceleration. Trends that were happening beforehand, like you know, some video conferencing or using new technology, Ubers, you know, rideshare services, you know, dipping our toe in the water, gas pedal has just gone down on a lot of those things in terms of awareness, adoption, and, and usage. So, Bill, we we spoke earlier today, and and you showed us a presentation, your new presentation, I think. Um, you, I think you guys call it eight thousand days. Mm -hmm. um, and Dominic and I obviously deal with retirement planning every single day. Probably half the conversations we have is centered around someone who is retired or will retire shortly. So do you want to uh, talk about um, your that new presentation and what it means to our clients? Absolutely. So there's data out there, there's statistics, right? We can read articles about extended longevity and life expectancies. Oftentimes, it, it doesn't really have much of a, a meaning, right? When you see that, I can throw out statistics, you know, a 60-year-old couple, there's a 43% chance of wanting them, wanting them living to 95. That's going to go to 50% as we go through the next decade. The fastest growing age cohort in the country is the 85 plus segment of the population. We're living differently. I saw a report that a typical 60 year old needs to plan on 25 years of healthy aging, not, not just aging. So really an evolving context. And again, that's great. We like stories. So at the Age Lab, we came up with a story to lend perspective to the realities we're all experiencing. And they came up with this concept called 8,000 days. So 8,000 days, if you were to convert that over to years, it's a little shy of 22 years. And what we find is we can segment out an average lifespan into these 8,000 day, 22 year increments. I'm gonna pull up a, a little visual up here on the screen just so everybody can see what it is we're talking about. We feel it looks something like this. So from birth to call it college, right? That's gonna be roughly 8,000 days, 22 years. College to your first midlife crisis. We have multiple now that we're living longer, sorry to say, but that's gonna be another 8,000 days. From then to our traditional retirement, you guessed it, you're seeing the pattern, 8,000 days. What's different for all of us today when we think about that last phase? Well, number one, it could be another 8,000 days or 10,000 or 12,000, right? We just don't know. And here's the, the challenge that we find from a lot of the work that we do at the lab. If you think about those first three periods, we actually have a, a fairly, generally speaking, good idea of what it is we're supposed to do. You know, there's a blueprint. We go to school, we're educated, we graduate, we start working, start the family, house in the suburbs, you know, ball games and dance recitals, graduation parties, right? There's a lot of, a lot of rituals, a lot of institutions. 
But geez, you get to that last phase, think about any, you know, advertisement, brochure, marketing material that's selling that period. My guess is you're going to see pretty similar images. You're going to see, I've got some images here, you know, you're going to see the, uh, you know, couple walking hand in hand on the beach, you know, somebody on a golf course playing with the grandchild, um, you know, riding tandem bicycles. I don't know who's doing that, but that seems to be very popular. And that's great, right? These images, that's part of the story. But as we know, that last phase is probably fraught with more ambiguity, question marks, need for planning than the first three combined looks a little bit more like this. Uh, so it really just it just demands some some uh, more in-depth conversation. I'll use an analogy picking off of something that Dominic said in his opening comments in terms of the picture that we have. So we do this all the time when we used to do it in live audiences, and then I, I think it works well. I'd like for everyone to think about this, and you may have done this during you know some of our stay-at-home days. Imagine you're sitting at your dining room table, your, your kitchen table, and you've got a bunch of puzzle pieces out there in front of you. So you're gonna sit down and the goal is, let's put together this jigsaw puzzle. What are the first steps? And I always hear the same answers, corners, edges, you know, flip the pieces over, that's helpful. And those are important, certainly, but they're not the most important first step. The most important first step, you have to look at the picture on the front of the box. If you don't look at the picture, we don't know what it is that we're solving for. Everybody listening to us today has their own individual picture. Really the key is how can we have conversations to get that as clear as we want? How can we in some cases challenge some of the traditional ideas we have? The whole idea behind it is once we get that clear picture, putting the pieces together almost becomes the easy part at that point. And Bill, to your point, uh, we're advisors and, and both myself and Mike started in the industry over 30 years ago and our concept of how long we would have to plan for somebody and how long those resources would have to last is significantly different today, right? We're sitting here with clients who are retiring at 65, 67 years old and we're literally doing 30 year planning. We're anticipating that these resources have to last for 30 years. So this is not just a nice story about living longer. This is a story where we need to really be sure that clients have the resources and assets so they can retire comfortably. Absolutely. And the conversation has changed, Dominic, just as, as you said, you know, for, for years and years, we always thought of retirement as just, you know, one big period, right? What, what, what's our number that we have to get to, you know, that type of language. Well, what the Age Lab is really uh, fond of, they call it chunking information down. So now, due to the fact that we're spending as much time in you know, retirement as we did from when we were born to when we graduated from college, we can no longer look at retirement as just one big period of our lives. We really need to look at four different phases of retirement. Is that the picture you're showing us now? The honeymoon phase, the exactly. decision phase? Right. So as the age lab breaks it down, and by the way, these aren't static. We don't move from one phase to the other, you know, after mm -hmm. 2000 days, they're meant more to drive conversation. So we've got the honeymoon phase, we've got the big decision phase, and that's where we tackle those big ticket uh, questions that you mentioned with the three questions before light bulbs, ice cream and lunch, you know, navigating some of the complexity and, and then the solo journey. These are really the four phases as we see it. Interesting. You know, you know, you know, the other thing, and Dom is right. We've both been doing this for over 30 years. And unfortunately, when I first started doing this and started doing financial plans for people, the myth that I would tell people was, oh, when you retire, your expenses are going to go down. So we're going to discount your need by 30%. And then when I start getting into the real world, so why am I telling people that? That 
is completely wrong because when they're at work, they're not spending any money. Now that they're retired, they could probably spend 30% more, not 30% less. So it's really important that we, we do the proper planning. And, and the truth is, Dominic and I both spent a lot of time, Bill, not so much talking about, you know, how much money do they need, but we talk about how do they want to spend that money and how do they want to spend that time? And then we could come up with the number. And, and that's been a real sea change in the discussions we have with our clients. And quite frankly, listening to your presentation over the last 10 or 12 years has helped us change that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm going to go ahead and put up your, your favorite questions there and we can <laughs> use this to guide the rest of our conversation. But, you know, you're exactly right, Michael, take the light bulb question, which is all about housing, right? Oftentimes, maybe we think, you know, housing is not going to be as big of a cost. I'm going to pay off my house, right? I'm not going to have a mortgage. No, housing is the number one out of pocket expenditure for people over age 65 with or without a mortgage, because what else goes into housing, obviously taxes and insurance and maybe HOA fees. What about maintenance, which will go up as we age? What about big improvements that might need to be made to the home? ARP issued a survey. They asked people, where do you intend to age? No surprise, 90% say in my own home. Have we thought about safety and accessibility and appropriateness? If not, what kinds of modifications might need to be made? There's actually so much, call it awareness, call it demand. There's a certification now for contractors and home builders called CAPS, stands for Certified Aging in Place Specialist. They're experts at understanding what types of modifications need to be made to, again, make sure that that home is safe and accessible. There's a cost to all of that. And oftentimes that's an unexpected cost, right? Because we tend to sort of tackle those issues in a reactionary fashion. So that's why the, these questions are so great because they can be predictive you know, of our future quality of life and can ensure that as we're experiencing the quantity, the quality is there as well. And, and to complicate things even more, Bill, the definition of retirement has changed dramatically, right? I mean, I remember 30 years ago, you'd sit down with somebody who was 65 and they retired and they retired. They're done, right? Yep. They're, they're now going to go and go fishing or play golf and, and pretty much uh, they're done. But today, 65, they, many people are starting their second or third career or their second or third business or in some cases, second or third marriage, but uh, it's a whole different leg of their life. Uh, and, and we adapt, we have to adapt to that, right? You're, you're absolutely right. And it's kind of ironic when I talk about those four phases and I talk about the honeymoon phase, the number one thing I talk about is work. So I hope I don't lose audiences there. But the Age Lab did a survey, this is about five years ago now, 30,000 respondents you know, um, across the country. They asked people to write down the answers to four questions year of your birth, gender, zip code, you know, for the socioeconomic data. But then they ask folks, write down two things you envision doing after age 65. So everyone think about that a second. Number one answer was travel, right? That's sort of the knee jerk reaction. The number two answer was work, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe not in the same way, shape or form you did for a majority of your career, but some type of work, small business consulting. I put volunteerism, nonprofit in there. Again, going back to this idea, 8,000 days minimum, it's a lot of time to spend. What are we going to be doing? How do we uh, have meaning, purpose, challenges, camaraderie, right? All of those things that kind of just drive us, um, you know, has to be thought about, right? In terms of, of how we're uh, replacing that. And 
you know, I love golf and I love travel and all those things, but hard, hard to imagine 8,000 days of that, right? So what else are we going to be doing? I think is a really important question and a really important topic. And it definitely ties into my last question, which is who will I have lunch with, right? The sort of social engagement that comes from, again, some type of work. And again, I, I put in, you know, volunteerism in there as, as, as well, you know, really, really beneficial. We've seen study after study that, that talks about you know, quality of life and increase in life expectancy. And one of the biggest common themes is really the social network that you have around you and the quality of that network and work and all of these things we talk about feed directly into that. So Bill, last question, because unfortunately we're quickly running out of time. I know you mentioned to Dom that, that Zoom is an example of the pandemic accelerating technology in the last 12 months. Do you have any other, other examples um, where the technology has really been sped up and brought to the forefront? Yeah, absolutely. So again, we talk about in the home and uh, Dr. Joe Coughlin, he's the founder and director of the Age Lab. And he, he's been talking about the home as a kind of a platform, maybe thinking a little bit differently about it. But we saw big time increases in you know entertainment, streaming services, uh, in-home assistance, right? The, the, you know, the um, Alexas and the Google you know, home hubs and, and things like that, security systems. So a lot of in-home technology. Uh, we saw uh, certainly um, some increases in adoption there, uh, as well as the social connectivity. You know, it, it's kind of ironic, and I, I make this my last point. That last question that we have, that's the most important question, right? The social networks is what keeps us engaged. We have to be intentional about incorporating new people, young people, and also intentional the role that technology would play. I used to get a little pushback on that, and people would say, sure, Bill, that's great. We have technology but it just creates a bunch of people walking around with their heads, you know, buried in a, a phone and no one talks to each other. Some concern, and I would never make the argument that technology is an apt replacement for social interactions that we can have, but it's proven to be a really good supplement. And I think a lot of people have seen that and have found the benefit of it. Especially during the pandemic, I have a very, very good friend of mine who spent Sunday checking in with all his friends. He lives in a studio in Manhattan and and in and, and and Zoom and FaceTime was literally his lifeline that he just didn't have an anxiety attack and crumple up into a ball. Yep. And and in a world where we have children living all over the country and grandchildren all over the country and all over the world, the ability to FaceTime or or, or actually have communicate with them play for virtually no cost and and to do it in an unlimited fashion is just a fabulous tool to to bring families together, even if they can't be physically together. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Hey, it got me to see you guys, which I haven't seen in a while. So I'm happy as can be about it. <laughs> Bill, thank you very much. This was a real interesting conversation. And um, don't be surprised if we invite you back to, to, to finish it for us. Love to expand on the subject. Anytime, anytime. Great seeing you. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Yep. Have a great evening. We'll be right back with joining Kimmel and his guests. Financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with Michael Hartzman and Dominic Tavella. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets. Now, back to the Labenthal Report. And welcome back to the Labenthal Report. I'm Jordan Kimmel. It's an absolute pleasure to bring on our next guest. It's John Hale from Morningstar, one of the most visible people in the industry. John, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
All right, so John, we know a little bit about you. We know CFA and PhD, you're good at school. We also know <laughs> that through Sustainability Matters and what you write every other week is probably one of the most widely read pieces in the ESG space. And, uh, you know, so I, I take that for granted, but what I wanna do first is I just threw out this word ESG. A lot of people say, what did you just say? And so as, as much momentum as it's gaining, why don't you just spend a couple minutes on really what ESG stands for, what it's about and, and, and the momentum behind it? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, ESG stands for environmental, social and governance. The governance means corporate governance. And it's really, um, you know, Jordan, a set of, of issues that um, I think traditionally had not been um, always fully explored by investors <clears throat> when they are making investment decisions. And so um, really not so long ago, only uh, about uh, 15 years or so ago, um, uh, uh, various um, um, uh, you know, research teams and so forth started gathering information uh, that's today called ESG information about companies um, in, in order to bring that to bear uh, in financial, overall financial analysis. It was often at, at first called non-financial information, but what we found, um, you know, more recently is that um, for any given company, for any given industry, there are a set of uh, ESG issues that may be quite material to their financial performance. And so ESG data provides a way for investors to be able to um, address those issues in a, you know, a more systematic way using data than they were uh, ever able to do uh, before. Right. And so, John, I came around this because over 10 years ago, I created something called the FACTS model. It really looked at the most trustworthy companies in America. And when we asked what is trustworthy, the, the things came up, accountability, mm -hmm. uh, transparency, sustainability. And then we looked around to see where we could get data like this. And I think that following the financial crisis and Enron and, and, and uh, frankly, WorldCom, they said, we have to look beyond quarterly numbers. We have to look at other things. And, and I think that as I did my own research, there's a lot of cottage industries that showed up that measured certain things. At this stage, I believe Morningstar is one of the cornerstones of all the data. And what I wanted to ask you, there's a lot of public, private, um, interest not only from institutions but from individuals so maybe take a minute on the Morningstar data what it measures and is it just for institutions or is it for individual investors as well yeah well it's a great question and and because a lot of the ESG data out there has been you know primarily for I mean if not institutional investors I mean for asset managers like right. like you to, to help uh, in uh, inform their investment process but what we did at Morningstar this was back in 2015 um, you know I, we had this idea that that was actually put into my mind by a large institutional investor who said you know John I'm interested in moving my investments to uh, managers who take ESG into account and who integrate that into their investment process. But I don't have any way of, 
kind of measuring their results. They can tell me what they're doing and they can give me examples, but is there any, you know, can, is there any way that we could, you know, put together some of this ESG data and, and analyze portfolios? He's kind of looking at me like, you know, you're a morning star. Right, right. You should right. know how to do this. That's the and natural it, place. It, 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 you know, it gave me that sort of that, that idea that, you know, we could, we could, we could gather this company level uh, ESG information that evaluates companies based on those uh, factors. And we could roll it up at the portfolio level and start comparing mutual funds. And so that's what we started to do. We started looking for an ESG ratings provider. We found, uh, we settled on Sustainalytics, uh, which uh, from our very first meeting, I just thought, you know, we had great alignment with them. They, um, they understood what we wanted to do. Uh, were willing to work with us on getting us where we wanted to be. And frankly, they taught us a lot about how to better understand the field. And um, anyway, fast forward to last summer, we uh, acquired Sustainalytics. So it's really now um, uh, uh, in, you know, integrated within the Morningstar uh, data. But what we did at the fund level was created a globe rating, we call it. Um, and it really assesses um, how well at the portfolio level um, a fund is I would say managing its ESG risks and opportunities. And so we could compare funds for the first time uh, with their category peers uh, to see, and, and you could compare across conventional funds as well as those that have an ESG emphasis to, to determine you know, um, you know, how much uh, ESG risk is in their portfolio. So that was, that's the first thing that's very widely available now to, to uh, fund investors, um, mm -hmm. star.com and in all of our other platforms. Um, but then we have, you know, we have more sophisticated levels of data. We can, we can show um, how much a portfolio is exposed to various um, types of, um, uh, you know, industries or products or things that people sometimes want to avoid in their investments. Uh, we're, we have a carbon rating that gives a sense of how much carbon risk is in a portfolio that's becoming more and more important to more uh, investors as well. And then um, one of the things, last but not least, that we have is fund proxy voting data uh, that uh, is organized so that um, you can compare funds um, with uh, their peers on uh, how often they support ESG-related issues on proxy ballots at company meetings. And then, right. you know, beyond that, and then we have uh, far more sophisticated uh, data at the uh, company level through our acquisition of Sustainalytics that's available. So, so John, let me, let me jump in here and, and ask, a, you know, the difficult question here. And so trust is an interesting thing. And, and how you act when no one's <laughs> looking is one of the most important things. Suddenly now companies know they're being ranked uh, on certain metrics. They're, they know what people are looking for. Uh, and then funds themselves, I noticed because I got really into the space, um, they, they'll say they do this, they do that, they, they use this kind of data. And then when you look into the portfolio, John, they own the same seven stocks that the largest funds own, even though when you look at them, uh, a couple of these largest technology players got screened out from my model. Uh, and, and get screened out from ESG data modeling, and yet they're in the portfolios of the largest ESG funds. And I believe that this concept called greenwashing uh, is the most dangerous thing in, in the whole space right now. Yeah, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really interesting uh, 
question and problem. I, I mean, on the one hand, Jordan, I'm a little more sanguine than most about greenwashing because I think oftentimes greenwashing is um, in the eye of the beholder who's using it to describe like any activity that they think doesn't go far enough. Okay. And, and, and I think that the big picture of sustainable investing is that regardless of how deep any particular fund goes with it or how comprehensively it is applied in an investment, that the more assets that pile into ESG, however it's defined, it's sending a very clear message to public companies, all companies really, that in our investors increasingly care about sustainability issues and they want corporate management to make sustainable decisions uh, you know, that consider all relevant stakeholders that take a long-term perspective. Um, the, the more sustainable investors that are in a firm's investor base, the more that management is going to hear those concerns. And by the way, they're also aligned with the concerns of other stakeholders today, workers, customers, communities, you know, policymakers and regulators. And all, so all of those ESG assets, um, I think are making a difference. You know, regardless. right. And John, look, I agree. And the thing is, a step in the right direction is a step in the right direction. Um, so I, I really agree with you. And very early on in this, I actually met um, Dr. Eccles from Harvard. I'm mm -hmm. sure, you know, you've come across in all the conferences yeah. you're at. What mm -hmm. he reminded the, the group about in the 1920s and 30s, public companies did not want to disclose their revenue. They did not want to disclose anything about their business. The SEC's tooth and nail has fought for disclosure. Now we're looking for more disclosure. And clearly, John, you cannot pollute and, and destroy the, the whole economy, the whole echo cycle while you're, while you're going to make a nickel for extra profits. So, so we, we, you know, there's no doubt we agree about that. I personally, I like to call it responsible investing. Um, and people that are responsible are going to make good decisions on governance. They'll make good decisions on sustainability. If you're responsible and you're thinking five years out, five generations out, rather than the next quarter, uh, the world's going to be a much better place. Yeah, I, I, I agree totally. And, and I, I think, though, back to, you know, kind of your original point on greenwashing, you know, it is important to keep in mind that there are different levels of comprehensiveness with which a given asset manager is going to implement an, an ESG <clears throat> strategies and that advisors and end investors, um, you know, do need to make sure their preferences are aligned with the, with what their investment managers are actually doing. And so, um, yeah, suffice it to say, not all ESG funds are doing the same thing. Um, and, and, and it's good to know, it's good to know how they're, uh, how they're approaching things, but um, well, it's good to have a service like Morningstar, which could actually hold the feet to the fire a little bit and ask the difficult questions. Uh, and so, what you know, so so John, if if I'm a small cap investor, I want my my manager to invest in small caps. If I'm a large cap investor, I want them to stick to the the plan. If I really am interested in an ESG fund. I really want those managers using those screens and not deciding to closet index and mm -hmm. say, how, how can I actually make a living if I don't own Fang Tang? And, and I just think it's an insult to, to the shareholders when you see this um, 
kind of just index mirroring when they can go a whole lot further. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the issue with indexing, and there are a lot of ESG indexes out there, is that, you know, they're not all built the same either. They're not built the sa with the same level of uh, thoroughness. Uh, some, you know, are just basically reweighting a, a base index, uh, you know, where the right. ESG performers get weighted a little better and the worst ones get worse. Right. So there's all kinds, of, you know, it's, it, so it is one of these situations where you got to make sure that, that you know what's happening with the funds. It's like transparency is so important right. with SG funds uh, with being able to say, here's how we're doing it. And then you can, then, then, you know, then hopefully investors and, and uh, advisors will make good decisions. I, you know, agree with you in the sense that uh, I, I hope that the way that the field moves is that more and more investors will say, we want real impact with our investment here. You know, we don't we don't want to mess around with like ESG light or ESG aware. We'd like to really, you know, uh, invest where it's meaningful and and so, find that with some of the preferences that investors bring to the table and investors, it is about impact and it is about saying we want positive outcomes beyond just my our financial returns. We want them, you know, positive ESG outcomes. Uh, that 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 uh, you know help people and planet as well. Right. Uh, well, and, look, John. Like I said, a step in the right direction is definitely a step in the right direction. We only have a couple minutes left. I'm going to ask the engineer if he can quickly bring Dom and Mike in if they have anything that they want to ask. And and you know, I do think that very clearly um, there's more awareness of this concept of ESG, if you will. Uh, and, and so let's see if Tom and Mike, you know, ha have something they want to kind of jump in on fire away. Uh, good evening, John. And thank you for, uh, for joining us. Um, so obviously this is a very hot topic these days. And, and I think we can all agree, you know, having a company blow up an oil rig in the middle of the, the Gulf is not a good idea for a corporate governance and the environment. And generally speaking, that's a no-no. But today it seems like every other day, there's a new uh, firm out there offering an ESG fund or ETF. And, you know, what is the definition? And it seems like it varies from company to company of what is an ESG company versus one that acts or smells like one yeah well i mean i'd say on the on that it's it, you're i don't think we're going to get you know a, a, a standardized definition of what is a, a good esg company or or or, or not i think we're going to get more standardized um esg disclosures of information from companies that might get us a little closer to that but you know i think actually one of the the good things about the about the field right now is that there, you know, there's no perfect companies, but um, you know, it's not black and white either, right? And so it's going to be up to the analysts as they get better at this um, to, you know, come to an understanding that they think is going to, you know, because it also is a balance, right, between uh, returns and and broader impact. You know, it's you, these are investments first. And so, um, you know, I, I think we're still in the early days of how to figure all that out. But, you know, whether we're going to always get, a, you know, the same uh, agreement on uh, is this company uh, sufficiently uh, good on ESG to be in my portfolio versus the other one? I don't I don't know that uh, I'm not even sure I want that to happen. 
but but now, John, if I could follow up, we had, we literally got a memo the other day, right, Mike, from the SEC uh, requesting a, a clearer picture of these kind yeah. of definitions. And obviously, the clients on one side that are requesting it, and regulators saying, "Hey, you better be know what you're talking about when it's an ESG." company or ETF or mutual fund, and yeah. yet we're still sitting here kind of the wild, wild west, right? Subject to interpretation. Yeah, I, th I think the upshot for, for from the uh, that SEC memo, for instance, I think it was, it was a pretty good one. It was I thought it was basically, um, when it comes to ESG, say what you mean and mean what you say. Exactly. You know? Like it, it's, it, we're not going to impose a one definition, but make sure you know what you're talking about. <laughs> and make sure you're actually doing what you say you're doing. And I think that's a, for now, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good, uh, 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 you know, warning. Hey, John, this is Michael. Thank you for joining us. Just real quick, isn't ESG what we used to call social responsible investing 15 years ago, kind of repackaged? So is it in its infancy or is it in an iteration of what used to be called something else? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, I think it, you could say that it, it has evolved from socially responsible investing, but um, I, I think it's quite different. I think it, it comes from um, this, I, I think it starts out, the reason I use sustainability is that I think that, that you know, the world in the 21st century is one that is filled with um, big picture sustainability issues, climate change being the obvious, you know, giant uh, concern out of all the others that um, are causing more and more people to have what let's just call them sustainability concerns. And, and, and they, they, they try to apply those concerns in various parts of their lives. They're starting to, they're starting to when it comes to investing, they say, well, okay, now that in the investing context, I wanna apply those sustainability concerns. How do I do it? Well, I'm concerned about uh, whether you know, my investment managers are considering these issues for, for, you know, the performance of my portfolio, number one. And then I'm also concerned about the big picture issues and how they're affecting the world and, and whether in my investments uh, have an impact, whether I want them to not have a negative impact or, or at least, or, or to also have a positive impact. So I think it's, I think it's a bigger, broader kind of um, situation than it was with uh, under the old uh, SRI. The old SRI was basically, you know, um, a, a relatively small number of investors who, for whatever reason, usually they were faith-based kind of investors who who sort of thought, you know, I, I when I come into the investment arena, I need to make sure my portfolios align with my particular values. So there's, you know, there's a bit of that connection today, but to, to me, it's a much broader context than 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 we used to see in the in the days of uh, SRI. All right. Well, John, you know, what we did is we, we did shed some light on the subject. I think it's going to be more and more in, in the forefront. I love the work you're doing. Um, if you want to share a website real quick, we already went over our, our spot. Thanks for the engineer for letting us go. If you want to mention a website real quick, and I want to thank you for coming on. Well, great. Thanks for having me, Jordan. I, I, sustainability Matters is at Morningstar.com, and my weekly blog called The ESG Advisor is on Medium. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great evening. All right. Thanks we'll be right me. back with more Labenthal Report. Thanks for joining us, John. Financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. 
This is the Labenthal Report with Michael Hartzman and Dominic Tavella. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets. Now, back to the Labenthal Report. And we're back. And Dom, our engineer, told us we have four minutes, which really doesn't give either one of our guests any, any justice at all, because I want to talk to you about Bill's presentation in the Age Lab, but um, ESG... Um, is something that we really don't touch touch on at all, and it is becoming much more of a a prevalent and uh, widely discussed topic for us and our clients. Look, uh, we're all looking at the the world in general, and we want what we do and our actions to matter. Whether it's recycling, how we what we drive our cars, the fuel we consume, um, and now that whole concept is coming to the side of investing that we want to be responsible. And you touched on it, you know, decades ago, we used to call it socially responsible. Um, People want to be responsible and targeted with where their resources go and the companies they support. Uh, But uh, to our first guest, we also have to make sure that these resources are there 20 and 30 years from now. And if we can find that happy medium, then then it's a win-win, right? Absolutely. And and I, I think it was BlackRock was the first company um, when I heard Larry Fink talk about corporate governance and, and when BlackRock looks to make an investment in a company that they hold that company's feet to the fire a little bit and, and, and make sure that they're not, as, as Jordan said, you know, blowing up the, the, the forest to make an extra nickel. Yeah, look, uh, we've discovered over the decades that companies that do not behave properly, do not treat uh, their their own employees, their customers, the environment well, at the end of the day, those stock prices get beat up. When that, when that comes to the public and comes to the forefront, the regulators step in, the environmentalists step in, and those companies get punished pretty, pretty hard. So from strictly a business perspective, you want a good citizen as a company that you invest in. You do, you do, and and the flip side of that, right? The 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 way to reward companies is the, the Biden, the last package that that Biden wants to propose, the infrastructure package. A big part of that is ESG and sustainability, and you know, charging stations um, in in major cities, and and free Wi-Fi, and 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 doing things that are cleaner and and more efficient than we're doing now because the technology is there to do it. So so if we can marry that concept of doing good and yet uh, making that more profitable for a company, uh, making their resources used more more sustainable in a sustainable way, then it becomes a win-win, right? Uh, where, where we all do better, we all live longer and healthier lives. Um, the challenge is getting companies to do that and in doing it in a way that's proper. Absolutely. And, you know, and just to, you know, tie it back in to Bill and, and what he talked about with, with our seniors and, and the aging population, I could promise you, Don, when that day comes, I will be delighted to take you for ice cream. <laughs> I know who I'll be having lunch with. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, I want to thank everyone this evening, and we wish you good health. Great evening, my friend. Looking forward to future one calls like this. Have a good night, everybody. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Labenthal Report. Dominic, Michael, and Jordan will be back for our next program, airing next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, have a great week.